Years ago, there was a commercial, and it had a series of questions. Well, how far is the moon from the Earth? What is the age of the universe, you know? Uh, how many layers do we have in the Earth's surface and all this? Do you like pizza? It moves from the profound to the simple questions, and then finally the screen goes dark, and out of that comes a very strange sound and a motorbike into focus. It says Yamaha. <laughs> it may not be the answer, but at least it's not another question. <laughs> we have questions. These two guys were sitting in a coffee shop, and one of them said to the other, let's have a game. I'll ask myself a question, and if I can answer it, you buy me a Coke. He said, what did you say? He said, I'll ask myself a question, and if I can answer it, you buy me a Coke. He said, that's absurd. He said, no, then you ask yourself a question, and if you answer it, I'll buy you a Coke. We'll keep going till one of us asks ourselves a question we cannot answer. The guy says, this is the strangest bet I've ever had. He said, but since you began, go ahead and start. So he said, my question to myself is this, how does a rabbit dig a hole into the ground, deep into the ground without throwing mud onto the outside? He said, that's my question to me. And he said, my answer is, start digging from the inside. The other guy says, how does the rabbit do that? He said, I don't know, that's your question. <laughs> we finally ask ourselves questions that we do not or cannot answer. But here's a question that I've got for you. What does a person look like who walks closely with God? But then you may be able to say, I think I know a few examples, and I hope you do. But here's a more difficult one. Is it possible to live totally surrendered to God and at the same time enjoy life? Because we have this odd feeling that when you come to the altar, you're not only dying to yourself, you're dying to any enjoyment. Those days are over. It's gone. We have painted this morbid picture of what it means to be surrendered to Christ, and we say we're never going to enjoy life anymore. I can't be happy. I can't be joyful. I can't take life by the throat because now I've sort of given myself over to more somber and more sober-minded things. And yet the truth of the matter is, when you watch somebody who walks closely with God, they have that joy unspeakable. It cannot be reduced to mere words. And the fact of the matter is, we don't realize that when we choose in pleasure, when we choose the path of pleasure, there is always a cost. There's always a cost for pleasure. No matter what kind of pleasure it is, you will pay a cost. For the good kind of pleasure, you pay the price before you enjoy it. For the bad kind of pleasure, you pay the price after you enjoy it. And the cost of following Christ may seem enormous, but, he said, but the Apostle Paul makes the comment, I am complete in him. And the Lord tells us, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I want to put two pieces of poetry back to back, to back and uh, see how this man who paid a very heavy price was a totally fulfilled man. I don't know who exactly wrote these, but they get, the guess is a woman writer to whom it is attributed. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, 
when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay that only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. When God wants to drill a person, thrill a person, skill a person, watch his methods, watch his ways. Years ago, Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote these words. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that the sculptor well those passions read, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, stamped on these lifeless things. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works ye mighty and despair, nothing beside remains round that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that the sculptor well those passions read, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. My name is Ozymandias. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains on that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. You can go across desert terrain these days. You get onto a camel or a horse and ride in the desert in Cairo and way out thousands of miles away as you see the tip of a country far away. You're riding in the desert and you will see crestfallen statues, the frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Demagogues have come and gone. They have their heyday. They have their moment with that clenched fist. But the day comes where death, which is no respecter of persons, fells them as well. So here you have it in a palace in Babylon, a man that God was drilling and thrilling and skilling in the palace of a demagogue with a frown and wrinkled lip with an iron fist over him. There were four boys who were brought to this palace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Sounds like the earliest Babylonian law firm with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you've got yeah, young Daniel there. But these boys are very unusual, and they were noticed by this king and by the power broker in his palace. They selected these fellows because they knew if they were ever going to dominate the people they had enslaved this way, they were only going to succeed by taking the cream of them and reprogramming their thinking. It tells us that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, were so well trained and so well prepared that they were taken in and given this opportunity to live in the palace with the goal to change their minds and help them to start rethinking everything from literature, language, philosophy. The literature, language, and philosophy of the Babylonians was going to be poured into their thinking so that they would speak a new language 
think a new philosophy, tell new stories. That was the goal. And the Bible tells us the story in Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read for you from verse 8 because the scriptures tell us what actually happened. But Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the God took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Dad and Daniel could understand visions and dreams as well. In verse 20, it says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Once to every man a nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. With a choice God speaking to us offers then the bloom of light then the man or nation chooses for the darkness or the light. James Russell Lowell wrote those words. He was also the one who said truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but the scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch, keeping watch over his own. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, but the scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch, keeping watch over his own. Truth was being put on the scaffold out here, and God was keeping watch over these four young men. But they were marching to a different drummer. You all march to a drummer. I march to a drummer. Whose drumbeat do you really march to? I see what it is that Daniel did. And in looking at him, I have the answer to both questions. What does a person who really follow God look like? Is it possible to be totally fulfilled while walking closely with God? The first thing he did was that he drew the line of resistance by training his appetite. You may not realize it, your appetite is trained. You train your hungers. You train what it is you miss. You train what it is you long for. Don't we know how tragic is the life of an addict, whether they're addicted to certain kinds of pleasure or certain kinds of drugs or certain kind of uh, inebriation that they put into their system and find that it takes their brains away, but they are unable to shake it off completely. And when you see an addict like that, you see a slave and you see somebody struggling to break free. There are centers all over the world, 
equipped to try and break people free from addiction because they did not train their appetite in the first place. What is fascinating about Daniel is there was nothing wrong with eating at the king's table. The food was great. He was happy to be invited and given all the luxurious food that he could have had. What is going on here? Daniel knew that if he bought into this luxurious life, if he bought into all of the comforts that he was being offered, he probably would never be able to stand against the philosophy that he was now being forced to believe and the comforts would seduce him in a way that he would no longer be a clear thinking person. You have to be very clear in your thinking with your choices, very clear. People ask me, what's the hardest thing about traveling? The hardest thing about traveling is the extraction of your strength, your fatigue, your fatigue comes in, the nights that you lose in sleep, and all the time zones that you go through. And the, what I fear is not the absence of the physical energy, but the absence of clarity in your thinking when the body has taken its toll and the fatigue sets in. You are clouded in your choices and in the way you make decisions. That's why they tell you never to make decisions when your body is so exhausted, you will not make it with a clear head and a clear conscience. He drew the line of resistance. He knew if he got used to this breakfast, lunch, and snacks and dinner at the king's table, very soon the king would own him. And that's not why he was there. He was a man with a mission, a young man with a mission. He knew he'd been placed there by God and God had given him the privilege of being a light in a dark place. And if he'd surrendered to the darkness, he would have made his own light even darker than in the first place. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the light within you becomes darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. Where are you drawing the lines in your life? Are you sensitive to the issues that tempt you, that allure you? It is so easy to buy into a system and be taken because the rewards are good. You know, some years ago, I remember uh, getting a telephone call at my home late at night. I was uh, living, I think, in uh, New York at that time where I was teaching, and this call came uh, somewhere at 10, 30, 11, I forget what it was. My worldview changes after 9 p.m. I don't like to see the world after 9 p.m. I just like to be horizontal and go to sleep. I'm an early morning person. I'm not a late night person. My kids always used to make fun of me. Now they are parents, and they're in bed by 9 o'clock. They said, Dad, I don't know how you did it for all these years. When I got a late call, I said it is either a wrong number or it's an emergency. Those who know don't call me that late. I picked it up and sure enough, it was somebody I knew quite well. He said, Rob, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. This man was an emergency surgeon at a hospital in the city from where he called. He used to put broken bodies back together. Very committed doctor. He said, I'm in trouble, something has happened tonight. I said, what happened? He said, a woman was brought in, so badly beaten, every major bone was broken in her body. And he said, and when she was brought in by the paramedics, they said, doc, she's gone. Don't waste your time, she's too far gone. He said, I looked at her and said, we're not gonna let her go. I have to do my job. He said, I went and scrubbed and put on my gloves and he said, my only hope 
was to get that heart beating as quickly as I could. So rather than even do a heart massage, I did a direct heart massage. I cut the rib cage, put my hand in there to get that heart and try to get it beating. Otherwise, it was never going to work. He said, I kept just massaging that heart, hoping it would get beating again. And it didn't work. He said, I went away from there rather shocked by what I'd seen. I wondered who she'd been with. He said, I wonder who the thugs were that did this to her, that so mercilessly, mercilessly fractured a woman in her entire body. He said, all these emotions were going through my mind. But he said, as I was washing my hands, Rav, he said, I noticed in the process of putting my hand into the ribcage, I'd cut my finger. He said, and now I'm living in fear because after that attempt was over, the medics brought her bag and emptied it out on the table and one of the nurses said she was a drug junkie caught in with the wrong guys so we don't know what her blood really was like. He said, I think I may have made contact with diseased blood and I'm a young father. I don't know what this means. The real test will take a few days to come back. I just want you to pray with me. And I said to him, I guess you've got a deep cut, have you? He said, no, it's a paper-thin cut. I said, are you telling me with that paper-thin cut, you've put your body at risk to lose all of its resistance capacity? He said, it doesn't take anything more than that. I've seen it happen in my profession. A paper-thin cut. And so I asked myself the question after I hung up and told my wife, woke her up and told her who the call was from and what was going on. And I couldn't get to sleep because the question that came into my mind was, are there paper-thin cuts to the soul? Do you do things and make choices that put that slender slit? I realize I'm borrowing metaphoric language from the physical world, but are there things that you and I can do that early in life that lacerate us in a way where years later they haunt and destroy. There is an industry out there, young men, an industry out there whose sole purpose is to take the money from your pockets and put it into theirs, and they will do it at all costs, and it's that dastardly industry called pornography, which uses people to expose themselves to seduce minds and plant memories and attraction in such a way that dehumanizes both the one presenting himself or herself that way and the one to whom they are presented. Because what it really does is make your mind in such a mess that no one human being can ever fulfill your desires anymore. It changes the pursuit of a person to the pursuit of a feeling. You're looking for that rush, that rise, that sensation. And that's why they flit from person to person to person. My daughter, Naomi, works in this uh, rescuing women in the sex trafficking industry. She's done some work here and right in your very city too. She's a wee little girl. And right from the time she graduated from Wheaton, she wanted to work with the hurting of the world. She directs a program of ours, ours called Wellspring International. She for years has been asking me to write a book with her on the damaging influences of pornography. She says, Dad, every woman I have talked to, whether it's in Amsterdam or Bangkok or Mumbai or here as well, 
or Paris, she said, everyone who is in this sex trafficking industry will tell you that their customers are generally men who lost their way with the impact of pornography upon them till they are insatiable now and they chase till they cannot find anything anymore and they've destroyed their whole marriage and their lives in the process. And so I say to some of you young men, don't put those cuts into your soul early because you taste something like that and it haunts and plays havoc with your brain. No, no matter what it is, whether it's wealth or riches or sensuality, pride, greed, lust, whatever it is, don't get seduced by it. I like Daniel's principle here when he so clearly says to me, no, I will not eat at the king's table because if, because if I do, I will forget the mission for which I am called and what it is that God has really placed me and given me this platform for. You know, I know a very robust intellectual who's brilliant in what he does, and he is a professor at a university. And uh, teasingly at times, we said to him, why don't you come on and join the team? He said, no, I would love to. That is something I'd enjoy doing, but God's given me a platform here, and I need to be in this platform where God has placed me in this secular setting to be a light and a witness in this place. You know what that tells me? A calling is sacred when you're honoring God no matter where it is. A calling is sacred when you're honoring God no matter where it is. <clears throat> you may be an engineer, you may be a lawyer, you may be a professor, you may be a homemaker. If you're doing it as unto God, no matter who you are, my calling is no more sacred than yours just because I'm proclaiming the word. He's called you to be in a particular place that I cannot get to and treat it with the honor and dignity and respect because in as much as you're doing it to honor God, you're doing it for the very purpose for which he's created you. And Daniel reminds me that he drew the line of resistance in order to be able to be the witness that God had called him to be. But not only did he draw the line of resistance, he drew the line of dependence. His dependence was not only on his learning, his dependence was on the wisdom that God had given to him. This is an enormous need in the hour. People often ask us wherever we go to, you know, what is your answer to the situation in which we find ourselves? We'd really be foolish if we thought we had the answer. Things are so complex. Things are so connected. Things are so interdependent. There are no simplistic answers anymore to the issues that plague our nations. But I'll tell you, if there is a single line answer, it is this. We need men and women of wisdom in high places to do what is right and to choose not just by the virtue of books, but to choose on the basis of the book of books that enables them to look to the eternal city whose builder and maker is God. That kind of wisdom. I remember uh, being with a man like that in Calcutta. They called him Saint Mark of Calcutta. His name was Mark Buntain. Uh, he was from Western, Midwestern Canada and worked in the city of Calcutta. You go to Calcutta in any church and say, does the name Mark Buntain mean anything to you? They will all respond the same way. The man was a saint. The man was a saint. He passed away some years ago. I remember when I was only 19 preaching in his church in Calcutta at the Assemblies of God Church. I was preaching one of my earliest sermons 
and he was sitting on the platform. I was so nervous. I was so nervous, I'm sure I bungled and blew it line after line. I could hardly wait for it to be over and for me to leave. And when it was over, I went and sat down, my heart beating so hard. And Mark leaned over and took my hand. He said, Ravi, that was of God. This was an amazing message you presented to us. Thank you. I'm so blessed to be able to be here just to hear you in your young life. God is going to use you in the years to come. And as I looked into his eyes, I said, Lord, give me what he has. Give me that saintly disposition. Give me that wisdom, the wise knowing of how to make choices in life. Wisdom is so needed. I've many, many times I've been in a situation where I've needed desperate wisdom for the moment. Every question I ever answer that comes from the floor, while the questioner is asking the question, I am talking to my Lord and saying, Lord, I need your wisdom. I don't want to make this a blanket answer. I don't want to make this just an easy answer. I need this answer to be yours. I was speaking in Germany once, and a very renowned professor had asked me to speak to his class in philosophy. He was an atheist. And I could tell the whole time the smugness in his attitude, that what does this young guy know, you know. But he had invited me for lunch after that, and I think he felt he had to honor that commitment and took me to his home. I wasn't looking forward to it one bit. I'm sure he wasn't either, but we were just doomed to be together. So I walked into his home, and his daughter was sitting on the sofa, not very wisely clad. She was sitting there. And he took me into the room and sat me down, and he looked at her and said he wanted to talk to me. Could she kindly give us that room for the moment? The language she used against her father, I didn't understand all of it, but as she flung whatever she was doing from her hand and stormed out of the door and slammed the door shut, as a young man, I thought to myself, my goodness, this guy's an intellectual. He's got so many degrees against his name, but this is the kind of family he's raised where your son or daughter cannot even give you the slightest of respect because they don't see you the way the world sees you. The world saw him as an intellectual. She just saw him as somebody who had not accomplished much at home. Ladies and gentlemen, you gain wisdom by doing two or three things, not just by your research and reading, but by spending time in God's word and spending time with those who have walked the walk and walk this faithful life serving Christ and serving him. Draw the line of dependence. Draw the line of resistance. And lastly, draw the line of confidence. What is the line of confidence? The line of confidence is this. Don't judge by the tyranny of the moment. Your nation's history is not over. There is a lot yet to come. God is not through with South Africa yet. Your best days may be ahead. And so when I say to you, the line of confidence God gives you and me is the fact that he is with you always and will take you through victoriously. You know, Charles Wesley wrote a beautiful hymn. I cling to that in my heart many, many times. I repeat it many times while flying. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love 
on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up thy gifts in me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat till death thy endless mercy seal and make my sacrifice complete. The line of resistance, the line of dependence, and the line of confidence. Daniel never crossed over to the other way of thinking. Three kings in a row crossed over to his side of thinking because this was a light that was shining in a dark place. It's your turn in your land and in the world to shine that light brightly. March to the drumbeat of God. Draw the lines in the right places. If you cross the lines over to the wrong places, make it right today and turn around and come back to where God wants you to be. God bless you.